This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, flamethrowers. Jessica here with a quick note that in the first segment of the show, we discuss multiple cases of gendered violence, including sexual assault and domestic violence. This is a content note for people who need it. The segment begins just after the two-minute mark and lasts for about 18 minutes. You can find exact timestamps in the description of the show. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. We are so happy you're here. On today's show, we have the hardworking Amira Rose Davis, an assistant professor of history and women's gender and sexuality studies at Penn State University, the excellent Shireen Ahmed, a writer, public speaker, and sports activist in Toronto, the brilliant Brenda Elsie, an associate professor of history at Hofstra, who is currently in Argentina on a Fulbright, and me, I'm Jessica Luther, freelance journalist and author in Austin, Texas. First, we want to give a shout out to all our patrons who are supporting this podcast through our ongoing Patreon campaign. You make Burn It All Down possible, and we are forever and always grateful. If you would like to become a patron, it's easy. Go to patreon.com slash burnitalldown. You can pledge as little as $1 per month, but if you donate a little bit more, you can access exclusives like an extra Patreon-only podcast segment each month or a monthly newsletter. For this month's Patreon-only segment, we talk about the NBA and NHL playoffs, so sign up at Patreon today so you don't miss out. On today's show, we're going to discuss two sexual assault cases that are in the news, even though the cases themselves are years and even decades old, and talk about when, or maybe if, there is a time to move on. Then we'll talk about all the noise around reports that Becky Hammond will interview for the Milwaukee Bucks head coaching position, the first woman to ever do so. Finally, Amira interviews Teresa Runstetler, professor of history at American University, about her time as a dancer for the Toronto Raptors and her views on recent reports about exploitation and equity issues concerning NFL cheerleaders. Of course, we'll cap it off by burning things that deserve to be burned, doing shoutouts to women who deserve shoutouts, and telling you what is good in our worlds. And now, on to the show. Gendered violence in sports has, once again, been all up in the headlines this week. There are two big stories about cases that are actually pretty old. They're not happening right in the now. But then we also have a couple cases involving the USOC, the Toronto Blue Jays. It's just been a big week for this topic. But we specifically want to start by thinking about what it means to move on and when we and when people get to move on from cases in the past. And the, and the two big ones that have been at the forefront this week Luke Heimlich, he's a pitcher for Oregon State. This was a big story about a year ago. It's, it's happening again because the New York Times took it up and they did a big piece about it a few years ago. I can't remember exactly how many. He was, it must have been at least five or six, right? Because he was 15 at the time, I want to say. Yeah. 
Yeah. He was convicted. He pleaded guilty to molesting his six-year-old niece. He has since said, he told the New York Times that he maintains his innocence, that he did it, that he pled guilty, pleaded guilty in order to smooth things over because it was a family issue and they didn't want to force a trial on the niece, even though he says that he is innocent. The mother of of the young girl, she was quoted by the New York Times saying, quote, there is no way he didn't do it. And so the question that the New York Times asks is whether or not that should be enough. He pleaded guilty. He did what he was supposed to under the court of law. Should he be allowed to pitch for Oregon State? And he's very good. So the idea is, should he then be able to go on and be a pro? At the same time, we get this other story out of Detroit, Matt Patricia. He is the new head coach there. It came out from the Detroit News. They found that he had been indicted in 1997 for sexual assault for a rape on South Padre Island here in Texas over spring break. At the time, he was a football player at Rensselaer Polytechnic. It was him and another football player that were actually involved. They were arrested almost immediately, indicted by a grand jury. About 10 months later, the case fell apart because she, the victim, stopped cooperating. You know, he did a, what did he do, a press conference this week, proclaimed his innocence over and over again, says this is very hard for him that this has come up again. I want to, I can't remember which outlet, but reported on this, but apparently there were five different witnesses that they were ready to put in front of a court, you know, the doctor, the police officer, she went to the hospital, all this sort of stuff. So it was definitely a very robust case. But as we see all the time, victim chose not to cooperate. So, you know... This was 1997. It is 2018. It was only an indictment. There was no conviction. There wasn't even a trial. So, Brenda, what are you thinking about all this? I mean, these cases, they are very different, but they do sort of ask the same questions about what this means, right? And these are very hard questions. So what are you thinking at this point? These are incredibly hard questions, and they're really different ones for me. I I mean, it comes up, so it kicks up all of these same sorts of tensions and sadness and, and outrage because they're all terrible things that have happened to girls and women over and over again. So they're they're connected, but they are so different. In, in the case of Luke Heimlich, I mean, I I think it's worth talking about that separately and first in in the sense that he's a minor when this happens. So he's a child. And we know that perpetrators, especially when they're minors, are by and large usually also victims. And Right. We don't we don't know for a hundred percent for this case. No, but you're right. No, we don't. Right. No, 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 not at all. But just extrapolating like this is a bigger sort of typical case that we see. It, it, it is really common that that perpetrators are victims, particularly if they start to be perpetrators and as as minors. And so I get this really confusing feeling, which is as a society, do we want them to reform or just to punish? It's I mean, it, does he have if we believe that people can be reformed and I do somewhere <laughs> as negative and cynical as I am. Then it has to be like, what is the what is the sign that he's reformed? How do we know? What's the process? You know, things like that. I do think those are important questions in all of it. In terms of has he has he reformed? Now, then there's the other question of how the police and the university have handled his case and given him such priority and preference and 
you know, if he was if he was an African American young man, I would be surprised if he was treated like this in the press. So it does seem like he's really being treated with kid gloves at the same time he was a kid. And I don't I, I don't know except to say how many cases like that go on to get educated in the university. In the end, he is a college athlete and as a college professor, I do want college to be a place for former criminals. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, there's college programs in prisons and they're, f- and they're important. This is, we live in an incarcerated state. So, so this guy's gotten off, but it still begs these other questions. Amira? Yeah, I think exactly that. I think it brings up all these thoughts for me about redemption. And what do we mean when we make, when we talk about restorative justice? What do we, what do we mean when we talk about, you can't be somebody who wants the abolition of the carceral state and not think really critically about what that looks like for redemption, what that looks like for rehabilitation, what that looks like for, you know, when, when do, how and when and where do we punish? And, I think that those are really hard things to wrestle with. I have, you know, many issues with the the sex registry that because we know that there's many ways that it has kind of been used to track and like put, you know, there's various infractions that can get you on this kind of massive list. And this case in particular seems, you know, very uh, fraught still just by looking at the quotes in, in the New York Times from the family. But I, I think I echo, you know, Brenda's considerations, like how, where do you go from there when this is something when he's 15, where, what happens? And I know that, you know, some people are like, you know, that's fine, but then he shouldn't have the privilege of playing. And I think it's for me a lot easier at the professional level because I'm like, well, that's labor, that's work. Like that to me at the professional level, is something I can wrap my head around because it's a lot easier for me to say, well, we know how hard it is to gain, be gainfully employed, you know, after you have interacted with the criminal justice system. And to me, you wouldn't preclude somebody from getting a job at Kinko's or at Walmart or whatnot. Like, how do we think about employment? post-incarceration or accusation and, and stuff like that. But at the college level, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, you know, have been wrapping my head around that. And I think I think Brenda touched on a lot of that is because there's so much that happens in college that is growth. I've grown. I've seen other people grown. People have made all sorts, have done harm to people. And, you know, we have really bustling programs that work with formerly incarcerated youth. And I feel like, to not even consider what it looks like to have compassion, not only for the victims, but for thinking about how then at 20 with your whole life ahead of you, do you figure out how do you, where do you go from here? Yeah. this case is interesting because, you know, he was a minor at the time. So the fact that we even know about it is because he like miss some scheduled meeting or something with his parole officer or something like that. And that's how the news got a hold of, of it. So the fact that we even know about it to begin with is, is weird. You know, I do think one of the complicating factors listening to you talk right now, Amira, and talk about, I, I agree that college is very important 
you know, and this sort of makes you think about amateurism and whether or not what's happening in college sports or is not, you know, it is labor too. We just don't talk about it that way. Right, and exactly. how that complicates part of this discussion is like they like him because he wins baseball games, right? That there's certain privileges that he's going to get because of that and because of what that means for the university well beyond whether or not it's a rehabilitative place. And on top of that, I think one of the things that's hard about this is that this is when they play these games and especially when they mean so much, there's a lot of cheering that happens for these people. There's literal cheering them on, cheering for them, holding up signs, celebrating them. And this is something that Brenda Tracy, uh, who's an assault survivor from Oregon State, that she brings up that part a lot, that would you be okay if you were sitting next to the young girl then cheering for him when he's on the mound, right? And there is something about the cheering part of this in sports that makes it all feel grosser in a way that I don't know how to, I don't know what to do with that. But I, when I think of it that way, it does really hit me in the gut. And, oh, and, and so I don't know, I'm I'm thinking about this. I know Shireen really wants to talk about what's going on right now with the Toronto Blue Jays. And the fact that I, I want Shereen to give us a little background, but the fact that they pulled him off the mound and you can't cheer for him, I feel like is really important. Um, and I know we're going to go back, you know, to the the pros here, but there's something about that. So Shereen, That's tell us what's going on. Point. Yeah, tell us what's going on in Toronto right now. Well, right now, the little preamble is that the Blue Jays are doing really badly, but more sort of more importantly, as Robert Roberto Asuna, who is a Mexican closer, was actually arrested on Tuesday for assaulting his girlfriend. Now, what came of that was really interesting in Toronto because then you get the automatic people that are defending what we don't know, it's innocent to proving guilty, which is, I think, the visceral knee-jerk reaction for people that don't want to deal with the reality of what violence is. Now, the manager, John Gibbon, said something really interesting because right away, and this happened on Tuesday, he came out with a statement, and the Blue Jays uh, also released a statement, and John Gibbon said, and I quote, you're dealing with human beings, regardless of walk of life. Hopefully there's nothing there. I love the kid, not because of what he's done for us on the field, but because of who he is and my relationship with him over the years. Really, in general, society in general, there's got to be a zero tolerance policy. You've got to protect the vulnerable and those who can't protect themselves. So I think that was really that was really important to talk about that. But there has to be a zero tolerance policy. And I read that to say, regardless who the guy is, we, I mean, you know, there's times in our lives where we find out that someone we really cared about or someone like a star or someone, an artist or an athlete that we liked was an abuser. And my example for this is Kobe Bryant when he first came out, like I was a fan. And then, you know, obviously very clear and that I'm not. But the idea is we have to separate that from the reality of what is is happening. Now, I mean, the conversation in Toronto, because it's been very much about this, was uh, there was a photograph of Asuna that was actually leaked of him in the jail cell, in the holding cell. And then the conversation, instead of being about, you know, what violence is like and how, you know, 
there's only been a policy since 2015 in MLB. And right now there's a criminal investigation happening in Toronto and a baseball one. So there's two simultaneous, which usually happens in these kind of situations. So, you know, there's conversation more about the photograph of him being in the holding cell than there is about the actual violence. And I think that's very problematic. I mean, we can point out tons of things are problematic. He was immediately put on administrative league by the MLB. So that's at least one week. And, Coincidentally, the Blue Jays had a game on Thursday and were supposed to give out like 15,000 Roberto Asuna shirts. Oh, wow. So they didn't, obviously. They, uh, you know, switched it and gave them out of another player. And uh, so what happened is, and then, then we look back on the, you know, history of how MLB has handled this. And, um, Canada has a very strong presumption of innocence, like more so than even the USA does. But, like, you ha- we have to be really careful about this. And then, so the Canadian team is taking a stronger stance, and they've also taken all of his merch out of the store. You can't find a shirt of him anywhere, which is also a very, I think, a very good stance. Because like Jess said, you know, there's cheering for these people. People would still be out, have access to buy shirts and whatnot. And for me, that's also really problematic when investigations are ongoing. It's easy to say, oh, well, we don't know that he did it, presumption of innocence. Yeah, but it's also really easy to say, you know, he, he probably did. and. I think it's important and this gets back to believing survivors. And then there's always the vacuous arguments of, oh, his girlfriend's just trying to get money out of him. It's just for popularity and fame. And, you know, we can debunk this all we want because the idea of assuming that victims come out and do this for fun or for money, we know is not true. And I, I don't have time for that. I'm not even going to, you know, merit that by talking about it any further because I'm just going to get mad. So I think that there, the Blue Jays statement on him was very, 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 Good. And I mean, I, I like that in Gibbons didn't even word, use the word allegations. And this is something was pointed out in an article that I read by a woman named Cheryl Ring of paper in, uh, of a, out of Guelph. And I think this is, this is really important because the discussions that she's starting and she's having and the point she's making are really important, not just in terms of Asuna, but in terms of the sport in general and how they can handle this and how they move forward and not be like a gong show like the NFL. Right, right. Amira? Yeah, I think that point you made just about cheering is so important. And I think that that gets to one of the things that that I think about most in this is the way that we're having a conversation, a nuanced conversation about what moving on means and how do you protect and and honor survivors while also like dealing with these really hard questions and complicated questions but i think that's the thing is like that we're thinking about this in a kind of good faith way where our bottom line is not about money our bottom line is not about winning and i think that that cheering point really speaks to one of the complicated things is that what what redemption or what justice or what rehabilitation looks like for these teams isn't about, you know, the, the best treatment for the individual. It's about their bottom line. It's about winning. It's about these institutions who are like, how can we minimize this? How can we make it go away? Or how can we treat this that helps us as an institution? And I think that that's one of the things that that run we run up in with a lot, whether it's the Oregon State situation or Patricia, it's like, okay, what can we do to, you know, ensure that this person who's valuable to our institution, who can help us win, is still available to win, that we still can cheer on, that by cheering we can redeem. And I think that's the complicated 
thing is that the point that they're getting to is this, this kind of cheering and using those cheers as redemption. And it, it dovetails and intersects with this larger conversation that I think everybody should think really critically of, of like, what do you, where do we go from here after, you know, sexual assault and domestic violence cases? And those interests may converge, but they're not at all the same thing. Right. And the last thing I'll say, sort of getting on, one of the things I always say about this topic when we talk about moving on is who actually gets to move on. We know how trauma stays with victims and survivors. And, you know, as much as I, you know, Patricia had his press conference and he got to say that this is very hard for him for this to come out 21 years later. And this is, you know, it was a difficult time when it happened because, of course, he says he was falsely accused. And the thing that I when I was reading about this, you know, the Detroit News that broke all of this said that they tried to contact this woman for like a good week before they gave up. And what that means for her and her life too, even though she's not named, you know, rightfully so because of the way we treat victims. But I keep thinking about the fact that she's probably gotten a lot of phone calls from people in the press this week and what this has meant for her life too. And so when we're talking about this, I always sort of imagine like, what does it mean to move on? What does it mean for the mother of that young girl in Heimlich's family? What does it mean to move on um, for her, for her, for her daughter? So we'll leave it there. So the mere idea of a woman possibly in a position of power in sports has caused lots of ripples and hot takes over the last week. Uh, Shireen, do you want to clue us in on what's going on in the NBA? Thank you, Jess. First of all, we love Becky Hammond. We love her so much. Becky Hammond, for our listeners who are not familiar, is a six-time WNBA MVP. She played the U.S. national team for a couple of years, and she played overseas in Russia professionally and became a naturalized citizen. So she actually represented Russia in 2008 and 2012 in the Olympics. And uh, she's totally badass. She's assistant coach for the San Antonio Spurs, which we love, all hail pop. And what happened was this week some news came out that she was actually going to be interviewing as coaching for a coaching position for the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, yes, head coach, like first coach. And (laughs) I like that. I like that. Yes. I'm sorry. I should qualify that head coach. H-E-A-D, head, as in first, as in boss. Now, what happens is a lot of people got into a tizzy. When I mean people, I mean people who gravitate towards sexism, obviously misogynists, we'll just call them that because it's true, in so much as there was all these rumblings about, well, is she qualified? It would only be for marketing. Can she really do it? Like these really pathetic arguments that are super uncreative and unintelligent. And so... And this is despite the fact that LeBron came out in support of it, which I also I love that because I love LeBron, but I also hate that he had to come out and support. Like if she was some underqualified man, there would be no need to support the idea. But she's not. She's a qualified woman. And so what ended up happening is something Pau Gasol, actually, all of us tweeted this, and I think the Bayad Twitter account retweeted it several times, wrote this absolutely, penned this absolutely beautiful piece for the Players' Tribune about her. And what I really like, what he said in this, I liked all of it, actually. One of the things I liked was that he said he's not coming out in defense of her because that would be unnecessary. She doesn't need defense because she is qualified. But 
one of the most incredible things of the many is that her candidacy for this is that he's talking about his experience working with her. And in the the piece for the Players Tribune, it's called An Open Letter About Female Coaches. I suggest everybody read it because there's a photograph here and he's like, what, seven something or like, and she's, she's not, and she's fairly, she's very tall, but he's looking down at her and he's completely absorbed in what she's saying. And he's like, yes, coach. And despite the height difference and the physical difference, he, this guy's in complete raptures with what she's saying because she knows what she's talking about. And that's, that's it. And I just, I really, really, really liked it. I really appreciated what he said and that what he was you know, talking about in the way he explained his life experience and having a mother that was a doctor and a father that was a nurse when people always assumed it was the otherwise. I mean, very clearly, like my mother's a physician and my father is not, but anytime we went somewhere, they automatically assumed he was Dr. Ahmed. This still happens to this day. And he's not, and I take the time to remind them constantly that he's not. But I think that one of the uh, really interesting things too for me about this was this great piece from Deadspin. Like they're 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 hilarious, and the title for this article is "Shit for Brains" columnist says existence of misogyny should prevent Becky Hammond from being hired unless it's for marketing. Because what's happening is columnists are coming up with these ridiculous ideas. I've actually been surprised. There's been no accusation that she's like, you know, she's accusing her of espionage because she played for Russia. I'm waiting to see that. Like that's how far fetched the arguments are coming. She's qualified. She's smart. She's been working with an incredible team. Like, I don't know what else needs to happen other than, you know, for people to shut up about this, other than the fact that she needs to be a man, which I'm sorry, is not the case. And this is amazing because it's just an interview, right? I mean, like, it's like, it's a report of an interview. But at the same time, this is a huge deal. Lindsay's not here right now. But I know she said publicly, like, she cried when she saw that Becky Hammond was getting this opportunity because it is such a big deal. At the same time, this is people's reactions to the interview, interview. for the job. Yeah, yeah Mira. It's, I mean, that's it's wild. It's like, hey, we're going to talk to a qualified assistant coach about the possibility of being a head coach and literally like, ah, mayhem. And it's yeah. just like, calm the fuck down. Like, shut the hell up and calm down, please. It really is so irritating. I find it really interesting. You know, I did these podcast assignments with my um, gender, sexuality, and sport class, and I actually had three students who did an amazing podcast on women coaches, and they each took different aspects of it. Yeah, one of um, I had two soccer players. One of them was a woman who interviewed her head coach about being a woman coach. But another, uh, her boyfriend, actually, who also plays soccer for Penn State, interviewed, he plays soccer on the men's side, and he interviewed anonymously male athletes around Penn State, asking them how they would react to having a women coach. And he did wow. it anonymously so they could be, you know, open and about it. And he was delighted and so actually surprised to report that despite the fact that almost nobody had experience having a women coach, they were like, yeah, but if she was my coach, that's just what it would be. Like we would learn from her and it would be fine. And there was very little hesitancy. It was just like, yeah, you know, 
yeah, <laughs> like there, yeah. It, it's not about <laughs> that. It's literally like, can you coach? Can you help me get to the best of my sport? Can you help me bring out the best in me? And it was really great to listen to him talk about that and how he was personally surprised. He was like, you know, absolutely shocked that so many people were like, that's a non-issue. Like, can they coach? And I think it points to one of the things that I saw this week that it was like, Have you ever noticed, like we've had this discussion, that some of the biggest supporters of the WNBA are NBA players, of of people who actually play the game, and people who have nothing to do with basketball, who are just fans or, you know, haters or whatever, has all these aspersions, but like people who actually are closest to the game are like what are you even talking about? This is a non-issue. Like this is, this is, can you ball? Can you coach? Like, all right, then you're good. Yeah, that's a great point. Brenda? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that it is always that good though. (laughs) I think, I think when your student was doing that thing, I think that's awesome. And I think it's generational too. So probably that's exciting. It's kind of exciting to think that, you know, Amir's student went out and did this and is is probably in in touch with like a new generation of people that have been affected have been affected by all these women. Like in the same breath that LeBron was talking about uh, Becky Hammond, he mentioned Doris Burke. Like right in that same breath, and so it's connected. You know, this uh, these sort of pioneers have done so much to change our our perception and to change other people's perception that may have been more reticent to accept you know, women in in positions of authority. But I I also feel like there's a kind of rhetoric that tells women to be patient and that just wait, you know, one at a time, one at a time. And it, it infuriates me because I think to myself in this case that patience is not a virtue. I don't know why we're being asked to have it. (laughs) frankly frankly (laughs) frankly drives me insane and so like even the most and this isn't about Pogasov because I love him right now actually I don't like him at all as a player or Spanish any (laughs) Spanish league I could talk about it but but as a as that letter was amazing and everything like that but I also get frustrated because I feel like even the most quote-unquote liberal or feminist allies you know if you if if you said, okay, well, what about if we interviewed seven head coaches, you know, at once? It's like they can handle one or two and then we're supposed to be patient for the rest or Hillary Clinton, you know, should do this and then we should just wait for the rest. I guess I just like, I'm okay. I'm like along with the ride and everything like because I love Becky Hammond. But I also think like we need to be like, why is it that like one is acceptable or the exception is acceptable and then the rest of the time we should be patient? (laughs) Bren, I think that's a great point, but also what it does is it puts so much on the shoulders of that person. So say Becky gets a job, then everything, you know, lives or dies on her success. And it's, it's, you know, it's the second side of the coin or whatever, two sides of the, I hate these cliche things, but you know what I'm trying to say? Oh, Totally. No, 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 I totally get it. And I agree. I think I think it's so interesting and generational how it works. When FIFA brought in women referees recently to ref the men's game, they brought in three and four, you know, so exactly that wouldn't mm, happen. Smart. So exactly. Not, I mean, smart. she is interesting. the one smart thing FIFA's ever done for gender equality. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did Brenda just compliment FIFA? Damn it. 
take, I take it. <laughs> she qualified it though. She complimented and then qualified it. it, so. it because probably okay. there's like probably Moya Dodd thought of it, and then they just like adopted it or something. <laughs> no, but I'm totally like not arguing with you. I just get like I just get tantrumy about like even yeah. even like liberal celebration. Not Amira, like in the social media and stuff. That's like. Yeah, you know, and it's like, I want this to be like, I want this to move faster because I'm just not feeling the patience. Yeah. I mean, it is 2018 and the report that one woman will be interviewed for a head coaching job, like people's heads blew up. Shereen, would you like to wrap this up for us? Well, I'm going to quote Pau Gasol and that's never happened before, but that's okay. In this, I think, you know, props to him for writing this piece. And this is what he said, quote, I'm not saying she can coach pretty well. I'm not saying she can coach enough to get by. I'm not saying she can coach almost at the level of the NBA's male coaches. I'm saying Becky Hammond can coach NBA basketball, period, end quote. Up next, Amir's interview with Teresa Runstedler. So I am here with Teresa Runsettler, who's Associate Professor of History and the Chair of the Critical Race, Gender, and Cultural Studies Collaborative at American University. She's also the author of Jack Johnson, Rebel Sojourner, Boxing in the Shadow of the Global Color Line, which came out back in 2012, but is a book that everybody should check out. I believe Brenda re-upped that in our newsletter a few months ago. Um, and Teresa's next book project, I am so looking forward to. It's exploring questions of blackness, masculinity, and labor through the lens of the NBA um, in their so-called dark days of the 1970s. And trust me, everybody's going to want to cop this book. So welcome to the pod, Teresa. Thanks so much for having me, Amira. So as I said, you are definitely a well-known historian, especially of African-American history, sports history, but many people might not also know that you used to dance for the Toronto Raptors. Yes, that was in another lifetime. But yes, I did while I was uh, in university. And then one year after I graduated back in the late 90s. Wow. So, you know, when I was Looking at a lot of the news that's been coming out over the last few weeks about equity concerns for women who are cheerleaders and dancers for professional football teams has been where a lot of the news is. I couldn't think of a better person to talk to for somebody who, as your profession, analyzes issues of labor and sport and race all the time, but also who has that kind of experiential knowledge and experience as as dancing. So my first question is essentially, how did you come to dance for the for the Raptors? Oh, geez, it's a long story, but I'll tell you the short version. I, you know, always thought of myself as an athlete. I started out, my first sport was figure skating. And then after that, I transitioned into dancing all throughout my high school years. And so I was trained in classical ballet, jazz, and modern. And so I have a dance background. Mm -hmm. And when I went away to university, I actually wanted to continue playing sports, but I had so many injuries. My favorite sport in high school was soccer. So Mm -hmm. I used to play for a traveling team that had so many injuries that I just couldn't play without fear. And so I kind of put that aside for a little bit 
I made a brief comeback to play for the York University rugby team, the first time ever that they had women's rugby. And I got very badly injured. Somebody fell on the back of my leg, cracked my, (laughs) my fibula. And so I was pretty much out of commission. And so at that point, with all of my ankle injuries and my you know, other leg injuries. I just decided I can't play sports the way I want to anymore, but I can pick up dance again. And it was something that I always loved to do. And with dance, of course, it's choreography. So you always know what the next move is going to be. <laughs> right. um, if there's not uh, the same element of chance, not that dancers don't get injured, but it just seemed like a safer option for me and one that would allow me to be physically active. So what ended up happening was my boyfriend at the time dared me to go to (laughs) the open call audition. It was in Toronto. It was the second year of the Raptors. So it was 1996 uh, in the Mm. summer. And I was just about to head into my third year of university. And I thought, uh, why not? Let me give it a whirl and see what happens. And I made it all the way to the end of the audition. I think there were about probably about 500 people there. Wow. And from there, I guess the rest is, is history. And I did that for, for three years. So from 1996 until 1999. Wow. I think it's so interesting about one of the things you're saying that dispels this myth that the women who are in the cheer squads or in the dance squads are somehow not athletic or not athletes. But it takes a lot of training to get to that point. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that people forget about dancing on a squad like the Toronto Raptors Dance Pack is that, you know, we didn't spend months learning a routine. You would learn Mm. a routine literally in a three-hour rehearsal the night before a game. And then you would have to come back and perform it in front of tens of thousands of people the next day. And it's not something where you can hope that, you know, if you make a few mistakes, nobody's going to notice because... You know, there's there's tons of people who are looking at you from all angles. And, you know, if, of course, if you know anything about hip hop, which was the primary style of dance that we danced in, although it was the 90s. So hip hop now looks a lot <laughs> different. But, you know, it's like one anda, two anda, three anda. That's a right. ton of counts to uh, remember. So even a minute and a half routine, it's a, there's a lot to remember in terms of not only the moves, but where you're supposed to go, you know, where you're supposed to be facing and all sorts of things. So yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to pull off. And then beyond that, you could also be hired to do corporate appearances, charitable appearances, Mm. you know, and different kinds of tours that we did around the city. So some weeks, you know, I'd be working 40 hours a week. Some weeks mm-hmm. it would be more like 20. Some weeks would be 10 hours. It would just depend on, you know, where the games fell each right. week to week. So you mentioned these corporate appearances. And of course, the article that just came out this week about the Washington football team's cheerleaders centers a lot on this kind of usage 
of women, particularly these in this case, the cheerleaders, to kind of woo big corporate sponsors of, of the team or big donors. And certainly a lot of the details coming out are egregious, but is, was there this kind of pattern? Of, of, did you feel like this, were you being like used? Was there this idea of like, we, we need to use women's bodies to promote the Raptors? Did you see kind of continuity between today and, and when you were dancing? Nothing. I mean, I think, Anyone who performs for a living, whether you're an athlete or you're a dancer, you're being used to promote something. Mm. And so I didn't feel that, especially in the early years. So when I joined the team, it was 1996. And Isaiah Thomas was still the, the GM at that time. And it was one group of owners And they kind of gave the choreographer and the dance team a lot of latitude as to what we could style ourselves as. So, you know, we had more of a kind of hip hop vibe as opposed to sequins and skimpy outfits Mm -hmm. vibe. So it was much more athletic and hip hop. We wore coveralls, we wore jerseys. And so even though, of course, you're showing your body and that's part of what dancing is, is, is to, you know, express yourself physically. And of course, you know, right. uh, you're, you're trying to do that and look good at the same time. But at the same time, I didn't feel that it was anything that made me uncomfortable. We felt like athletes. Mm-hmm. We felt like dancers as opposed to cheerleaders, although the distinction is murky there, didn't have pom-poms. We didn't really sit on the court until the last quarter when we would go out and perform short routines during timeouts and whatnot. So for a lot of it, we, you know, during the games, we'd be back, essentially backstage and out of view. Mm. And so at least particularly for the first two years that I was on the team, it, it did not feel at all. And in fact, I think I mentioned this to you at one point, we actually had men on the squad for the first few years. Right. And so it really was not this kind of sense. You, you didn't get a sense that you were being, you know, egregiously objectified. Yeah, it, it just didn't have that feel to it. I will say that when the, the mm-hmm. team changed ownership, and, you know, Isaiah Thomas, whatever one might want to say about him in other contexts, he was, you know, one of our greatest supporters and, and really just let us have free reign as to what we wanted to do and how we wanted to present ourselves. When he left and then mm-hmm. Maple Leaf Sport and Entertainment took over the ownership of the team, things did change. And in the sense that the costumes mm-hmm. changed, they became much more shiny, (laughs) lots of sequins (laughs) and more bearing of the midriff, tighter, more sort of girly in the kind of, I don't know, cheerleadery slash dancer type style. And it was very clear to us too, that we were supposed to be performing primarily with the sort of big money folks who sat 
uh, courtside and in the lower levels of the bleachers mm. that we were supposed to be dancing for them as opposed to, you know, performing for the entire stadium. So it, it did take on much more of a transactional objectifying feel. But on the other hand, it was never anything even remotely close <laughs> to some of the things that I'm, I'm reading about and have, have been reading about over the course of what the last been several exposés. Yeah, nothing to that level, but you could certainly tell yeah. when the tenor of, I don't know, uh, the ownership changed certainly the expectation of, of who we were supposed to be and how we could style ourselves certainly changed. And the other thing that I would say mm. about our squad is that when we started out, we had, you know, within obviously a certain range, we had different heights, different body shapes, different ethnicities, races, et cetera, on the team. And I think that that also started to change too towards the end of when I was mm. on the team. But yeah. Yeah. So what, when you're reading these exposés and, and it really, I feel like is becoming a labor issue. And when you're reading these pieces, do you, you know, what are you feeling for these women who are yeah, just I trying mean, to do I their job? Yeah, I always looked at uh, my position with the Raptors as a job because in fact, you know, when I was making what, eight, nine bucks an hour <laughs> doing research for um, a history professor, I couldn't make nearly the amount of money that I could working for the Raptors. And in fact, I probably made more money than most of my peers who worked either in food services or different jobs on and off campus. So I certainly, you know, saw it as a job, as a, as a means to an end, really, to, to pay for. University. I know that in my first year that I was on the team, we actually did have an anti-fraternization clause in our contract. But mm. for some reason, that disappeared in subsequent contracts. So I don't know what happened. I wasn't sort of in the, the know about the conversations that went on behind the scenes that caused the Raptors to take that fraternization clause out of there. I thought it was kind of laughable. And I mean, part of it was I went to university in North Toronto and, you know, all the action, if you were going to be in mm -hmm. the action or in the scene was all in downtown Toronto. So literally I would commute down to the stadium, dance, do whatever, go to a rehearsal and then turn right around and go right back to campus. So I wasn't really in the this, this scene. Mm. Most people, I don't think we're at all interested in that. Most of the people, like I said before, who were on the team were either in community college or university, or they were aspiring performers who were, you know, busy, you know, doing gigs all over the city, many of whom uh, still are working in the industry. So it was never really like, you know, anything but a job to me. And then, right. I mean, I guess I think the context is also a little bit different too, because, you know, cheerleading is not really a thing 
<laughs> and where I'm from, there wasn't this sort of expectation right. that you actually really even cared who the players were. And like the big sport in <laughs> that part of Ontario is hockey. And so, I mean, really, nobody right. really cared that much. <laughs> about hanging out with players or trying to hang out with players. I mean, certainly, you know, just having been at the games, you know, the players, there were instances where people would get messages, you know, handed from ball boys and whatnot. And so you could, you know, choose to Mm. respond to it or not, but it wasn't really a prevalent part of you know, our thinking that we were trying to either, you know, be involved or, or avoid them. It just, yeah, we just didn't really, yeah, we were just doing our job and, um, you know, many of us saw this as an entree, either a way of paying our bills or an entree into the industry. And that's actually how I ended up, you know, getting an agent and becoming a, a freelance dancer. So, I mean, one of the things that I think about when I look back on that time was that there was really no other place to make money, be in a kind of dance company that danced hip hop in Toronto. That kind of was the spot to Mm. be if you wanted to be doing that and you wanted to be making regular paychecks. So, you know people can say what they will about the objectification of women, but a lot of us were there because we wanted that creative outlet and we wanted the camaraderie and we wanted the ability to do all of that and also bring in a paycheck at the same time. Well, I think it's so important to, to hear that and to, you know, fill out this conversation because it, a lot of some of the reactions I've seen to some of these, you know, exposés are, well, why, why would women even dance or why would they take these jobs or why would they want to do this? And I think part of what, you know, that help fills out is that there is, first of all, it's a job. Second of all, there's a lot of benefits for or, or incentives for women who want to aspire to dance. I mean, my, my sister's dream for when she was little was to be a Cowboys cheerleader. And it's, and it also kind of helps frame this moment, which is that makes it even more egregious that when women get to these positions that they're treated with this kind of disregard by a lot of these organizations, as we're starting to see people have been kind of abusing their positions and taking advantage. Yeah, of absolutely. And I mean, I, I, this is and, actually making um, it's really me remember some of the, you know, just little things that we did to try and control the conditions under which we worked. You know, at one point, they tried to get us to do one of our sets like up in the stands and it was horrible. You know, we, we did it one time and like oh people goodness. were, you know, saying not so great things about us as we were up there. And we went back into the change room and we said, you know, if you ever make us do that again, we were all just going to quit. We're, we're done like that. That was just a line that we didn't mm. want to cross, you know? So it, it's not as if there, I don't know. I mean, I, 
I understand as, as somebody who thinks of myself as a feminist, as somebody who thinks about labor, thinks about, you know, uh, sport and consumption and, and all of these things. Absolutely. There is a way in which you could say, Hey, this is another instance in which these hyper-masculine sports are objectifying women, but it's really not that simple of a narrative if you actually start to look at the reasons why women go into it, the ways in which, you know, they draw a line at what they're willing to do and and what they're not willing to do in the name of the job and 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 really think about actually, you know, for us, dancing mm-hmm. was a form of athleticism. It was our craft. And for some of us, you know, continued to be our profession for time after even we were working for the team. So, yeah, I know what it looks like from the outside, but I certainly, as I was experiencing it as a, you know, in my early 20s, certainly didn't feel that it was all bad or that I was being objectified in in a kind of simplistic, uncomplicated way. Right. Well, thank you so much for adding nuance oh, uh, to this conversation. It's so much fun and to talk and to We're happy to have you on the pod anytime. Thanks again. <laughs> now it's time for everyone's favorite segment. We like to call it the burn pile, where we pile up all the things we've hated this week in sports and set them aflame. I'm going to lead off this week because mine is absolutely the least important topic, but still. I have been watching the only four weeks long athletes only version of Dancing with the Stars, (laughs) which is already, go ahead, which is already halfway over. By the time our listeners hear this, there will only be the final left, actually. Um, So Adam and Mariah have been amazing, as you'd expect. Josh Norman from the Washington NFL team is wonderful. And the show is actually generally really adorable. But... I have to burn the fact that loser Chris Madster, pitcher Jenny Finch-Dangle, and figure skater Tanya Harding are still in the competition, and burn it all down favorite Arike Ugambwale and fucking basketball legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar are not. <laughs> I am so mad about this, you guys. I will say Harding is pretty good at this, and she has her redemption story or whatever you want to call it going for her. But Kareem <laughs> Abdul-Jabbar is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <laughs> and... <laughs> He did an awesome shoulder shimmy. Like, you should look this up. And he can pretty much keep the beat, even though he's so damn tall. And Arike, she was so good. I don't get this terrible voting. Maybe we shouldn't (laughs) let America vote for anything anymore. We're terrible at it. We've known (laughs) since American Idol when Jennifer Hudson and all these black women kept going home. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is like mm -hmm. reality TV when America gets to vote. Like, guess what? Black people go home. (laughs) Yeah. Or, Or Donald Trump becomes president um so <laughs> i am that's just on, that's unbugged. on white that's on white women okay donald trump is on well, white women. who do you think is voting for <laughs> dancing with the stars so anyway and also I'm white bummed. men <laughs> yeah uh, i'm bummed that when i tune in this week i will not see cream or arike and i want to burn it so burn burn, burn. burn. amira what has you steaming this week 
Yeah, this is random. I was in a hotel room somewhere. I don't remember. <laughs> and I was, you know, when you watch like Sports Center at two in the morning, and they were doing this package on Michigan, University of Michigan football team in Normandy. And I like sat up because I was like, hey, what the hell are they doing in Normandy? And also the way that it was packaged together, it was like talking about service and valor in a way that rhetorically has been used to kind of push back at anybody who would dare protest you know, police brutality or anything in the sports realm. And I, but I thought, oh, you say politics don't mesh with sports and you're literally talking about like political warfare and bringing a football team there. And then I was like, well, who funded this trip? So now I uh, looked into it. This is actually the second trip last year. The Michigan football team went to Rome. This year, they went to Paris and Normandy. The trip cost an estimated $800,000, sponsored by just two donors. And, you know, Michigan is a public school, and these are private donors giving money for these trips. This is such a hit among the donors and to give the student-athletes life experience. And there's many articles you can read, you know, for people who are like, this is... Yes, it's random, but it team builds and it gives them experience and it gives them traveling experience and all of this stuff. So they liked it so much that they're floating options for next year's trip already, which include Barcelona, Cuba, South Africa, or Greece. I'm sorry, in-state tuition for Michigan is going through the roof. It's one of the most expensive public institution in-state tuitions around the country. This is a place where people are fleeing. The return and retention rate for students of color is absolutely abysmal particularly because they keep targeting University of Michigan as fertile kind of hunting grounds for white supremacist groups and white nationalist groups. Like, it reminds me, Jess, of when you were speaking at Penn State and that guy wanted to talk about, like, all the great money things that Paterno have done and donated for the school. And you're like, and he's like, if he didn't donate money, like, if he didn't donate this, how would they have a library? And it's like, yeah, but the boosters could have just built a library. Like, right, exactly. They didn't have to yes. give it to Paterno to build the library. And I think that why I want to burn this is because it really highlighted for me one of the things that happened with private donors and boosterisms in the intersection of collegiate sport. Like, it, I'm not saying that it's bad for people, students anywhere to travel the world. Like, I think that it's an amazing opportunity and we do, you do grow as people. But the fact that two donors can come together and donate $800,000 to get this team to all of these places and just at the whim, I'm just like, think about the allocation of these resources and that like, I, it is mind blowing to me. And I, I just, I don't even know. So I'm just burning down boosters and because it's just annoying and um, yeah, dumb. So burn. 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 Shereen, what are you burning this week? I'm burning. I love women's soccer. I love the NWSL. But Eddie Robinson was actually named the Houston Dash assistant coach. Head coach awesome. is, is Vera Pauzi is the head coach. And uh, this is after Lisa Cole left. Now, I'll tell you what my issue is with this. First, because Eddie Robinson is very clear about his likes and dislikes and some of the things he likes, not to mention they're anti-Semitic, Islamophobic and absolutely racist. Um, he's also super sexist. And I was Kevin McCauley on uh, Twitter, who is also uh, a friend and a soccer writer, had actually linked and screenshotted. And we'll put that in the show notes, hopefully, if it's possible what some of the tweets that he liked and there's that guy that awful 
Mike Cernovich guy. Like when you, when you like that person, you're not really on the fence about what your opinions are on like humanity. It's, it's very clear. And also Eddie Robinson is actually was really, really awful because when Rachel Daly collapsed on the field, um, I think it was last year from heat exhaustion, he was like, you know, his his reply was like, men and women both have been playing in this heat for years. It seems the only people concerned are those who don't play in it. Like he was dismissive that she actually collapsed from heat exhaustion. And nobody who knows women's soccer has forgotten about this. Like you don't, first of all, everything on the internet stays forever. And the fact that this person has been hired is telling because the owners of Houston Dash are known Trump supporters as well. So they can probably sit around and share their likes of, you know, Islamophobes and like racists and sexist and misogynists. I think it's also really interesting. And I'm just going to say this out there for our friends at NWSL and the media, social media, they did have a tweet about it. Eddie Robinson is named as assistant manager with like a face, a blank face. And that tweet is now gone. So we're just going to say that I, I didn't screenshot it, but I saw it and solidarity with them there. I know the people that run the, the social media and they're amazing and they were probably mortified because I just think that this is unfair and Houston Dash and those players deserve better. I also, I, yeah, and I also saw a tweet saying that Kristen Press was probably in Europe thinking, oh, my God, thank God I'm playing in Sweden and not Houston Dash anymore. <laughs> and, you know, like, but but only yeah. if everybody could have that. So I, metaphorically burning Eddie Robinson, his opinions and the grossness and the lack of empathy for his own players and for all of that situation, because women's soccer has enough problems, doesn't need the likes of Eddie Robinson. Burn. 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 Okay, Brenda, what's on your burn pile? Fox Sports Peru. Uh, Fox Sports okay. Peru started just a couple months ago, and Fox Sports has gone into Latin America pretty deeply and in many places. But what it does is it waits uh, before the World Cup, you know, or a major tournament, and then it goes in and sets up shop. So Fox Sports Peru, in kind of antip- anticipation of Peru's participation in the 2018 World Cup started the network in March. And it is the deepest cesspool of racism and sexism in its short life. I'm It's done already some horrendous things. And this week, it ran a skit that parodied Afro-Peruvian soccer star Jefferson Farfan. And comedian Miguel Moreno, and I'm putting comedian in quotes in my hands in the air because he's not funny, put on blackface and proceeded to act as if he was supposedly Jefferson Farfan. And by the very nature of blackface, it it was actually if you didn't, if he hadn't had like the the other accoutrements of Farfan, like the jerseys, you would have no idea that's even who he was parroting because that's the ex- oh my god, that's the type, that's what blackface is, right? It's it, it, ridiculous, it's exaggerated, yeah. it's got no sort of connection in reality. And then he proceeded in this costume to act like a total idiot on the in the segment, flirt with beauty queens, all of this other stuff, and and Jefferson is pretty much responsible for Peru going to the World Cup. And even five years ago, he had to sue Frito-Lay for a similar blackface parody of himself. 
What? Yeah, like what the hell, Peru, Fox Sports? So, I I, I mean, it's disgusting. The Minister of Culture came out and complained. But it's like there needs to be stronger uh, multas. There needs to be stronger fines taken when this type of stuff happens. This is hate speech. And and he suffered it long enough. So, Jefferson, Barfan, we are rooting for you in the World Cup. And I am burning Fox Sports Peru. I can't do it literally because I'll go to jail. But it's not even metaphorical for me. It's like, burn it down. Burn. 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 I'll I'll pay your bail money. You're welcome. I love you. (laughs) After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some remarkable women in sports this week with our Badass Woman of the Week segment. First... We would like to offer our condolences to the Wilmington College community and volleyball team for the loss of volleyball player Lauren Grewan. The freshman died at the end of April from complications of lupus, an autoimmune disease that she was battling. And now for our honorable mentions. Canadian referee Carol Ann Shainar and assistant referee Chantel Boudreau for being appointed to the FIFA U-20 Women's World Cup in France in 2018. This will represent Chenard's fourth appointment to the FIFA U-20 Women's World Cup and Boudreau's second. Dr. Rimla Akhtar, founder of Muslim Women in Sport Foundation, was on the Muslim 100 Power List in the UK. Her work advocating for Muslim women in the UK and globally is phenomenal. Viviana Vila, who will be the first woman to call matches for Men's World Cup for Telemundo. It is the first time in the 71 years of the Footballer of the Year Award that the group has honored a woman. AFCW Futsal 2018 champion Farishta Karimi from Team Iran, who was named MVP of the tournament and leads the repeat champions in goals scored. Okay, a drum roll, please. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our Badass Woman of the Week and in honor of Mother's Day is Kylia Carter, the mother of former Duke and soon-to-be NBA player Wendell Carter Jr. She spoke at a Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics panel this last week. A former women's basketball player at Ole Miss, Carter took the NCAA to task for their failure to pay players for their labor. Here is one part of her statement, quote, The problem I see is not with the student-athlete, it's not with the coaches or the institutions of higher learning, but it's with a system like the only system that I have ever seen where the laborers are the only people that are not being compensated for the work that they do, while those in charge receive mighty compensation. The only two systems that I've known to be in place is slavery and the prison system. And now I see the NCAA, the overseers of a system that is identical for that. All right, Miss Carter, you are a badass mother. Okay, what's good, y'all? Brenda. What is good? What's good is my panini sticker book. That my sticker oh. book is all, right. all filled up. And I get my kids to trade with the kids in their school for me. So if you get doubles in the sticker packet, then, you know, you're supposed to be trading with fellow schoolmates be- because I'm actually a middle-aged woman doing this. I need to send my children <laughs> to go make deals for me. 
So, um, <laughs> so the good thing is that they actually really like it and it gets them to use their Spanish more and they bring me home awesome stickers and I have Paulinho, who's my favorite and the World Cup oh. is one, yeah, World Cup is one month away and believe me, we'll do like some major stuff on the show about it. So I'm getting really excited despite the fact that it's a disgusting political garbage bin fire. It's still going to be so awesome. Nice. Shereen, what about you? Okay, a couple things. My eldest turned 18 yesterday. Happy birthday. Happy birthing day. I know. So Sophilai is 18. I'm a bit like, what? Because in my head, I'm 20. So I'm like, what? And he's like far more mature than (laughs) I am. Um, What's good? And I've tweeted this publicly. The burn it all down mug that I got in the mail from Amira is giving me life and joy and even more happiness. (laughs) And I'm so excited by it because I get to have coffee with y'all. And that is everything. Um, Ramadan is around the corner. And I'm excited, but I'm also nervous because the fasts are really long. And I am super happy because it's a wonderful month, a month of just reflection and prayer. And also me being super cranky ass by the time it's 6 p.m. because I have to wait till like almost 8, 8 or 8.30 to eat. But that's okay. I'm gonna, I can manage that. And also in conjunction with Ramadan, my outdoor soccer season starts. And I've been waiting for outdoor for oh, wow. like, ten, like eight months. So I'm really excited. I love my team. And I will be fasting during games if the timing works out that way. So just if y'all can send some good vibes and if you pray, send me some prayers because I'm going to need them. (laughs) (laughs) Amira, what's good in your world? Yeah, I'm in Massachusetts to celebrate my cousin's graduation from University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you. It's graduation season and at Penn State, we released many uh, of some of my uh, fun students out into the world and it always makes me a little weepy, but very excited for what's next. Also, I just want to, I'm blessed to have three mothers, hashtag adoption. And I just wanted to shout out my moms, all those who have mothered me, they've shaped me and that's you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Um, and also, dare I say, most importantly, we are just seven days away from a little time of the year known as Gemini season. The baddest and boldest sign It is almost our time. I will not stand for your Gemini slander. The countdown is on a week away from Gemini season and 22 days from my birthday. That's what's good. Oh, nice. So my what's good is that I finally saw Avengers Infinity War, which means I'm finally able to read all the things that people have been saying and listen to all the theories. How did you avoid spoilers this long? It was really hard, but I did it. I did not know all of that. I did not understand know that all of that was going to happen. Don't um, tell me. I was I very proud of myself. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I was very careful right there with what I said. And then the other thing that's making me really happy is my whole family is very into a local awesome musician named Mobley, and that's M-O-B-L-E-Y. Uh, he just released his first album. It's called Fresh Lies Volume 1. I highly recommend it. We've known about him for a couple of years. I like him just like as a guy, as a dude, a friend. But the album is really, really great. It's on Spotify. You can find it. And we all are singing it. My son learned one of the songs on the piano. It's just been really fun. If you need somewhere to start, his single Swoon is wonderful. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Burn It All Down on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to subscribe to Burn It All Down, and you should, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. 
For information about the show and links and transcripts for each episode, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us from the site to give us feedback. We love hearing from you. If you enjoyed this week's show, please share this episode with family, friends, work colleagues, neighbors, whomever you think would be interested in Burn It All Down. Also, please rate the show at whichever place you listen to it. The ratings really do help us reach new listeners who need this feminist sports podcast but don't yet know it exists. One more thank you to our patrons. We couldn't do this without you. You can sign up to be a monthly sustaining donor to Burn It All Down at patreon.com slash burnitalldown. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash burnitalldown. That's it. For Amir Rose Davis, Brenda Elsie, and Shereen Ahmed, I'm Jessica Luther. Until next week. And I'm sorry.